0: Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is delighted to offer the Lift Every Voice Scholarship for master's degrees, which covers 100% of student tuition. This scholarship recognizes the need for amplified voices at the intersection of theology and racial justice. More information can be found at bc.edu stmscholarships.
1: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Joy Calhoun. Dr. Calhoun is an adult child psychiatry resident at Yale Child Study Center within Yale School of Medicine. She is an expert at exposing racism in the medical system and mitigating the effects of racism on Black Americans. Dr. Calhoun firmly believes that all doctors should be activists. I wanted to talk to Dr. Calhoun for a while now. I had read many of her writings about her own experience of having a brother with severe autism and the kind of racism he experienced in the medical field and just trying to get treatment, trying to get a COVID vaccination, how he had been thrown to the ground and handcuffed And just things like that that she's experienced and also her own experiences as a doctor being called racial slurs and just moving through the world, experiencing racism and understanding the real cumulative stress on Black people. So I thought she'd be a good person to speak with to help us sort of understand, you know, are there still vestiges of racism in medicine? What does that look like? What could we read and study and understand it? How should we respond to it when we see it? We just try to really examine more closely some of the given things in medicine that exclude Black people. For example, the kind of tools used to take physical tests not being designed in a way that would accommodate anything except straight, thin hair. And then people's responses when it doesn't fit Black patients, the things that they expect Black people to do instead of saying, you know, maybe we can redesign this in a way to accommodate more than just straight Thin hair. It's a wonderful conversation, I think. I hope it's an eye opening conversation. And I also hope it makes people think about how they can be creative about how me- we might examine things more closely and what kind of solutions can we come up with so that all of us can get better health care and be included in the practice of medicine. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, Please support it by following the Gloria Purvis podcast and by getting a digital subscription to America. You can get a digital subscription by going to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Calhoun is up next. Dr. Calhoun, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you so much for having me, I'm excited. Me too, and you know, your work is just amazing. And for our listeners that maybe this is the first time they're being introduced to you, maybe tell them a little bit about why you got into medicine.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I wasn't one of those people that was sold on being a doctor from day one. Actually, my first love was writing, but I wanted to be able to help people at vulnerable times in their life times in which people feel like they don't have control, times in which they need someone to help protect them. And I'm good at arguing and advocating for people, but I wanted to have that one-on-one interaction with the person that I'm arguing for every day. I wanted to have a, be able to interact with people every day and do something, no matter how small, to make their life a little bit better on a day that may be terrible for them. Mm. And so I think as much as I, I think big, yeah. I want to change a lot. I'm not happy with the way that Black people are treated in this country. I want more. I always want more. I also very much believe in the small one-on-one interaction with someone who truly cares about you and is there for you. Yeah. And it could be something so small. You go in and get your blood drawn and the person smiles at you and asks, are you okay? And, you know, counts to three before they put the needle in. And also psychiatry specifically, yeah. we really need psychiatrists. They're very much in need. And actually Black women make up less than 2% of psychiatrists. So there's a huge need for Black women and Black physicians, Black psychiatrists. So it all kind of came together.
1: Well, I'm glad you're doing this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And when you talk about the need for Black physicians, Black psychiatrists, I'm sure there are people saying, but why? What do Black physicians and Black psychiatrists bring to the field that you believe the field is lacking now?
0: Oh, goodness, where do I start? The medical system is and has always been extremely racist. Do I think that it's getting better? In some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. And when we look at the data, we see that Black people, regardless of socioeconomic status, which a lot of studies like to blame things on, oh, Black people are just poor, they're uneducated, that's why they're sicker. We know when you take away all of that, black people still have worse health outcomes and experience worse treatment when they enter the hospital. And when we think deeper into that, the medical system is a predominantly white field, predominantly non-black field. And I very much feel that the presence, feel and know from personal experience, observation, and data that having black physicians taking care of black patients leads to better health outcomes. It leads to more trust. It leads to more patient communication. It leads to more protection. And on top of the lived experience part, the expertise. So, Black physicians are more likely to want to do work in underserved areas. Many of them are doing extra work on top of the work we have to do to become a physician to learn about social justice, health equity, the history of medicine. Just the Black physicians that I know. Not only do they have the lived experience of being a Black person in America, which helps them to be able to relate to their patients, it's beyond that. It's the unique, brilliant expertise of the Black physicians I have met, the work that they have done to really have a certain skill set to help Black patients navigate what it is to be a Black person in this country and help them to be able to get
1: good care. Well, I can tell you that there are going to be some people like what the medical field is extremely racist. What? Why do you say that? And so, do you have some examples of racism in medicine, especially maybe in the field of psychiatry, or maybe there are some data or reports you want to point people to who want to examine this more closely? Sure. I mean, some of the
0: big ones, and even before we get to psychiatry, is just look into black maternal mortality. And you know, the take-home message is that, like I said before. Black women are more likely to die from preventable childbirth complications or you know, pregnancy-related complications than white women. And for the longest time, people had said you know, passively, actively, that the reason why Black women were dying more than white women was because we were poor, we had less education, we had less prenatal care. In other words, in my opinion, they were saying it's their fault, mm. not our fault. Mm-hmm. That's what I got from that. However, multiple, multiple researchers looked into this and they found that actually a college graduate Black woman is more likely to die from a childbirth-related or pregnancy-related complication than a white woman who never completed high school. Mm. And I remember hearing that statistic and it like all came together for me. Like, whoa, this has actually nothing to do with socioeconomic status and everything to do with the color of my skin, and how I'm viewed in this country. With psychiatry specifically, so I do a lot of work with children. Mm. So a lot of my data looks at children, but a lot of this data is the same for adults as well. But I recently co-authored a study that was in JAMA Pediatrics that showed that Black children are more likely to be physically restrained in the emergency department compared to white children. And what I mean by physically restrained is, you know, when we have patients as psychiatrists, but also in the emergency department, as emergency department doctors who are out of control. Um, and I mean, like just behavior that may be a safety concern. So they're doing something that to hurt themselves or something that may hurt someone else. We do sometimes have to resort to physical restraints, which can look like putting a patient into a chair and sort of strapping them down so they can't hurt themselves or other people. But anecdotally, I had been looking at the fact that it seemed that predominantly white staff, which is medicine, were much quicker to put my Black patients in restraints than white patients. So they would take a longer time verbally de-escalating, if you will.
1: They would take a shorter time with Black patients verbally de-escalating?
0: And a longer time with the white patients. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So like an example would be, let's say you have a Black patient who's yelling and screaming and punches a wall. They would be very quick to say, Dr. Calhoun, I need restraints on this patient. Without... Mm -hmm going up to the patient asking, what's going on? Are you okay? Whereas I would see a white child do something similar, throwing chairs, cursing, yelling, punching stuff. They would say, oh, Tommy, what's going on? Let's sit down, take Hmm. a deep breath. What's going on? So I started looking at the data and the data actually does show Black adults as well as children are more likely to be physically restrained than white patients. And I very much feel and know that that is because largely white staff are more afraid of black children, which that's been documented. There are many studies that I can, you know, listeners can look at too, to show that black kids as young as five are viewed as more aggressive or viewed as more dangerous than white children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think staff are scared and I think they have less empathy for black patients. I think that there is a desensitization in this country to the struggling of black people. And I think All the televised murders of Black people by the police shows us that because when you open an article now, I don't want to see a video of another Black person getting murdered by the police, but oftentimes I'm forced to see it. It starts playing and I'm like, I don't want to see this. This is upsetting for me, but I don't see white people getting killed in other instances, white people dying of sicknesses, white people dying of different, we don't see white death to the same amount that we see Black death. And I think that translates into the hospital.
1: So, you know, when you say Black death, I actually was thinking we see more murders of Black people uh, when you talk about those. But here's the thing. So when we talk about police brutality, I know that this is real and it's happened and the Black community has been talking about this for better part of 100 years. But it's almost like these things are shown because... Not everybody has that knowledge or people will even doubt that police brutality is a real problem. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a double edged sword of we need to show this to demonstrate to people that this is something real. But at the same time, it is something that is terrorizing, actually traumatizing, actually, for me to watch. I don't like seeing those things. I wish I had never seen the George Floyd video. Honest to goodness, just Ooh, I wish I had never seen the pictures of Trayvon Martin's body, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I know without the visual evidence, there are going to be people that deny that these things are real. But the effect of that yeah. visual evidence on certain audiences, making them less empathetic to our suffering, yeah, that's a huge that's a huge problem. So when when you talk about treating children, working with children, and seeing the staff do that, I also read a piece that you had written. Well, you talk about little kids being called racial slurs in the hospital setting. So I had a white child who
0: was calling a Black child the N-word. And I talked to staff and I said, you know, what's going on? Because, you know, I'm not on the unit. That's the other thing. I'm not always on the unit when this thing actually happens. If it were, I'll get into that. If it were, I'll tell you how I would have handled that. But immediately when I heard from my Black patient that she had been called the N-word, Mm. I said, just give me a minute. (laughs) I went to the white child, who, by the way, was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, a child, but, you know, old enough. She knew what she was doing. And I just said, I will not tolerate racism on this unit. You will Mm. not do that. I said, if you need to curse, that's fine. Not ideal, but you will not use hate speech. And she started saying, like, how she wasn't racist. I said, oh, you are racist for using that word. And I said, but you can change at any time. But right now, you owe you're racist, very racist. Hmm. She's like, I am? And I said, oh, yeah. And I started to explain to her how much damage she was doing and how it was very much different than, you know, calling someone an idiot.
1: And she knew it. So some of my listeners might not know the difference or help them understand why using that racial slur is laden with a lot of intentional psychological trauma. For the person that they're targeting with that slur.
0: So we know that hate speech, when I say hate speech, I mean multiple different types of slurs, right? We could talk about the N-word, but we could also talk about other, you know, minoritized groups that have slurs that have been directed towards them. Another example is I stood up for many of my transgender patients who are being called slurs, but hate speech broadly, we know does impart psychological damage. And what I mean by that is it's heavy speech. So when a person is being called the N-word, a Black person, and I'm not speaking for all Black people, everyone's experience is different. It's not just about the word. It's about the violence behind it. It's about the racism behind it. It's about all the history behind it. And when you watch a bunch of white adults do nothing and someone is in your face calling you the N-word, which by the way, has often been followed up with lynchings, actual physical violence, that is yeah. traumatizing for you. And I think the only way I can explain it to someone who is not, cannot be the victim of hate speech is to sort of say, imagine something happened to you that was very traumatic and there was a word tied to that. And you heard that word again and it was being yelled in your face and no one was protecting you. It would be about more than the word. It'd be about the images. And so when I, for me personally, what I'm called the N word, the images that come to my mind are lynchings Am I safe? Am I going to be hurt? And I think about the whole history behind that word. And it feels very dehumanizing in a way that calling me an idiot is not, because it has nothing to do with my identity and my skin color and my intelligence and my innate inferiority that they're trying to prove. But the fact that I do talk to white staff about this often, I've seen time and time again, they rush to defend the white patient. Oh, you know, he, she is struggling. He's struggling. And I said, okay, do you think my patient isn't struggling too? Mm. Oh, he doesn't know what he's saying. This child is 16 years old. This is another example. He knows what he's saying. Yeah, He can think. He chose to say it. There's like this, almost this guilt that I feel from them, this need to kind of like support the white patient. Or they go and say, well, the black patient did this, this, and this, Dr. Calhoun. Okay. Wow. What does that have to do with them being called the N-word though? So there's a lot behind it. But what I was so surprised by was the lack of action. Like it was like I was bringing up something new to right. say that this shouldn't be tolerated in a hospital system, which very much gave me the feeling that how often is this happening? And why is right. it like new and different that I'm talking about how this is a problem? And I guess coming into medicine, I would have thought with how intelligent people are and how caring they are and how much they want to protect patients, inward racism would be obvious. There's nothing to debate about.
1: So I guess what I'm trying to figure out is just as the adults in the room, how they didn't understand that they needed to intervene and set a boundary and make it clear that that type of behavior, that type of language is not acceptable, not okay, will not be tolerated. I mean, I'm not even (laughs) trained to be in that space. And that's my initial reaction of how I would have handled it. What should they have done? What would you have done?
0: So I would do, you know, what I did after the fact, unfortunately, with some of my patients, which is immediately I would have come in between the two patients. And I would have said, we're not going to talk like this. This is racist. You're being racist. And I will use the word racist. This is racist hate speech. Why do you do that? Because I think we need to own it. Mm. I think palatable language I haven't seen it work, so maybe it works for some people. I'd love to see their output that that works. I haven't seen it work. I have seen my straightforward approach work where you're just clearly saying this is racist language." So I come down to their level, say, "This is not you're not going to do this to this face. You're not going to use this word." They, the white patient, can leave the situation, like be extricated from the situation wherever they are, go to their room or different, or the Black patient can be removed so that they don't have to continue to be physically next to that person. Hmm. And then I tell the white patient they need to apologize. I mean, the first time I was called the N-word ever in my life was by a white teenager. Wow. And he looked at me and called me the N-word. No one did anything except for a Black attending later, actually, who came and supported me. Oh, so this is
1: why you were... As a physician? Yes. Treating patients? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So
0: that's a whole nother thing. So the Black staff get called the VMware, too. And I looked at the white patient and I said, that's racist. I'm not going to tolerate that. And I'm going to expect an apology from you. And this kid was in a meltdown, upset, everything else. Sure, yes. Did he have psychiatric problems? Yes. But he knew exactly what he was saying. He wasn't out of it. He's able to think, right? And mm-hmm. he said, I-, I can't apologize. I'm too upset right now. And I said, Okay. Mind you, 30 minutes later, I walk back on the unit. He comes up to me, Dr. Calhoun, I'm really sorry I said that. Mm. I'm sorry I said that racist language. And I said, thanks for that apology.
1: Let me ask you something. In terms of that child that was called the slur, how do you help that child? It's been hurt in that situation. Because I know probably are plenty of people listening saying, how how can I help a child that has experienced that? What do we do?
0: Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about that. It's a really good question because I want to say that there's no standardized training Mm. or treatment for patients who experience racism in psychiatry. Psychiatrists are not formally trained in how to help navigate patients through racist experiences. Mm. So there may be training, but it's not something that all psychiatrists have to have. So I sort of feel like I am... Piecing things together from Black supervisors and other people who are doing this work, but we don't get it unless we seek it. So that's a problem. I think about it almost as like a toolbox. Like, what is it like a toolkit you can use for patients who are targeted by hate speech? And I think the first thing that I came up with is acknowledging that it is hate speech and that it's racist hate speech because. People often say, well, just because I tell this patient that they're being racist, that's not going to stop them from being racist. And I said, okay, but maybe, maybe not, but I'm not acknowledging this as racist for the white patient. I'm doing it for the black patient to show them that their feelings are valid and to demonstrate Mm -hmm. to them that this is a big deal. Because what Mm -hmm. ends up happening is it ends up being brushed under the rug sometimes, minimized, and they may feel ashamed. So first acknowledging that it happened and apologizing that it happened. You're here trying to seek care and you are being targeted by the N-word. I'm really sorry that happened. And generally, because kids are so sweet, it's okay. And I tell them, no, it's not okay. And I think we as healthcare providers need to take responsibility when something like that happens on a unit that we work in, that we take pride in. So once I acknowledge it and I apologize, I take a cue from the child, but usually I ask them, they're feeling about it and i try to process their feelings around it yeah every kid is different so some kids will i'm angry and i'm upset and i'm this i'm this they'll give you a lot of different feelings and some kids will sort of say i don't know yeah so i kind of give them the space to really tell me how they feel and if they can't tell me sometimes i give them examples you know do you feel a little bit ashamed it can be kind of humiliating to be called that right and i sometimes will use physical symptoms too for little kids Does your stomach kind of hurt ever when stuff like that happens? You get a headache. Does Mm. your heart beat fast? Other things, right? What I'm really asking is, are you feeling anxious? But they might not know what that means, right? So physical symptoms too. And then lastly, I think, and most importantly, and I'm simplifying it, is I actually incorporate Black empowerment into my sessions with them. So Mm. I had a little boy who was called the N-word multiple times by a white patient, young, young child. And so after I did what I just mentioned with him, he really liked to play with dolls. And we had this game that we would always play with dolls. And he also was a really good drawer. So I would always make sure I picked brown dolls and I would always make sure I picked different shades of brown. So I then incorporate, well, I'm going to choose this dark brown color and I'm going to make, you know, my person this color because I love this color. This color right. is beautiful. I'm going to make it my brown eyes and brown hair. And so I incorporate different things like that into my sessions with the child afterwards. And I found that that helps and them feeling more empowered and happy
1: about their identity, which we can't change and which I want them to be proud of. And you know, when you mention that, it just does happen in medical settings. I I want my listeners to know I had a, I am a black woman, I have a black daughter. And in kindergarten at a Catholic school where most of the students were white, during playtime, these other little girls told her and the other little black girl with her that they couldn't come over to their space to play because we're not letting black people over here. And I didn't know about it till my daughter got home from school. And honey, woo-hoo, I was like, you know, I was trying to be calm. And I was like, so, and what happened next? She said, well, the other little black girl started crying. And then my daughter got indignant and went over there and said, we don't want to play with you anyway. Okay. <laughs> and it was like, you know, trying to make the other little girl like have fun with her. But one of the white girls that was in the group had a pang of conscience and came over and said, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Can I play with you here? -hmm. So I want people to understand it's not just limited to places where people are going through a mental health crisis. Mm -mm. This can be an everyday kind of experience in the places we least expect it. At a private Catholic school, you know,
0: that is a really good point because people do often say, "Well, does it happen more because the?" But the sad thing is, my black patients are like, "This happens to be a lot at school. It has little to do." with the psychiatric illness. And mental illness is used as a scapegoat for racism. Mm. But oftentimes these kids that are saying these N words, they're about to leave the hospital, they're stable. This is just the word they use to describe people. It's not that they're in like this episode where they don't know what they're saying.
1: We'll be right back.
0: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot.
1: One of the things that I want people to understand or maybe grasp is when you talk about racism in medicine, examples of that that exist today that I could think of is how people are rated for, let's say, a kidney transplant. And the calculation used in that has been flawed and based on incorrect information about Black people's bodies, but it still exists in the calculation today, which makes it harder for Black kidney transplant patients to qualify for a kidney transplant. Mm -hmm. Can you give examples of things like that or other measures that are problematic today?
0: That's a really good question. Yeah, so it's not even just in behaviors, but the actual algorithms and calculations are also racist. So I have two that just came to mind, one being... A lot of our suicide predictor algorithms in psychiatry, which, you know, predicting suicide is still really difficult, but studies have found that they're mostly sensitive to white populations. And in many of them, you get an extra point on the algorithm if you're white. Hmm. In other words, that tells you you're at higher risk of suicide if you're white. However, that's problematic for many reasons, because first of all, Black youth, their suicide rates are increasing faster than any other racial ethnic group right now. And also Mm. what it does is it sort of, it makes you look less at the black patients who also still are committing suicide. So you don't need to have race at all.
1: Right? There's nothing
0: inherent about your skin color that has been made up that makes you more or less likely to commit suicide. But something about that, it goes into like making race something biological, which it's not. So it's in the Mm -hmm. suicide predictor algorithms. Not all of them, but still some of them. And then the last one is, I actually wrote a piece about this in Stat News about ECT, um, electroconvulsive therapy, which is Mm -hmm. something that people get in psychiatry. Sometimes if they have like very severe depression and other things. And this also happens with, you know, EEG sometimes where people look at seizures, but specifically- I talk about how in ECT, the way that they have to put the electrodes on the scalp, one of the ways in which they do it, you can't do it with certain hairstyles and thicker hair that a lot Uh of Black people will have. So I talk about how I call it Black hair racism and mental health, but how you may have to use a different type of ECT, which may actually have stronger side effects simply because the hairstyle you have does not accommodate the actual machinery that they have. So it's made for people with like, because you have to pull aside the hair. So it's made for people with thinner hair. Whereas oftentimes if you're African descent, you may have your hair braided, you may have locks and it also thick. So you can't just pull it aside and put the electrode on the scalp. So things like that, it's like when you start looking into this stuff, a lot of the machinery, as well as algorithms and calculations have been made to center white people, or white features, or European descent features. And we as Black people are sort of in the periphery. It's like, well, change your hairstyle. And when I published this, people told me that they were told to like shave their hair. Yeah, wow. And it's like, why do we need to do that to our hair? Straighten our hair. Why do we need right. to do that? It's one of those things I tell people, once you start reading, and once you start really paying attention you will start to learn more and more about how inherently racist the medical system is and how actively racist it still is. And I don't expect people to know everything, but I do expect if you call yourself someone that is anti-racist, that you A, want to learn, and that B, you are open to the person who is targeted in that group giving you advice. So if you're doing research about racism, I hope you have Black people on the leadership
1: of your team. And I'm hoping people really deeply engage with this. You know, we, at least myself as a believer, as a believer that every person is made in the image and likeness of God, I do see the effects of racism in various fields in our country having a deleterious effect on the people who are subject to that racism. And if we want to treat people with dignity and respect, we need to examine these things. And this is a part of the hard work of actually examining it and undoing it because these people who are not being treated well deserve to be treated well. And one last thing that I'll also say is I say, Dr. Calhoun, is like, we need a psychological exorcism <laughs> with the ways in which we have been conditioned to not even consider Black people in the calculus of human care. So yeah, I'm hoping our listeners begin to think about this and recognize that there are things that they can do and say. And chiefly in that is that they can become educated by just learning more Yes, and feeling okay to say something and to yes, where they can institute change.
0: And I always tell people when they ask, Saying something is better than nothing. I'd rather someone stumble over their words, not know exactly what they're saying when they're trying to defend me or defend a a Black patient who's being treated unfairly. Don't worry if your words aren't perfect, but the fact that you're actually saying something to help them is what matters because silence is never helpful.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Calhoun. Keep raising your voice and keep writing. We'll be following. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And could you do me a favor? Leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, is produced by Maggie Van Dorn, and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.